Welcome to episode two of the Full Count podcast. I'm Jack Curry. I'm joined by David Cohn. We've written a book called Full Count, The Education of a Pitcher, and we're giving you a sneak peek at what's in that book via this podcast. David, we are up to your minor league career. You've now been drafted by the Royals. Carl Blando was the scout who signed you. How much did minor league life suit you? You're a free spirit. You're not under mom and dad's rule anymore. What was it like to be out on your own? Well, it was uh, the best and the worst times of my life, both. I mean, it was everything all at once. I mean, totally, totally unprepared for the real world issues, you know, uh, budgeting your money, um, you know, finding an apartment, um, living the life in the minor leagues, uh, still developing your craft, having the right attitude, but not getting carried away off the field because it's the first time you're away from home. So there's a balancing act there and a lot of tough lessons that that were to be learned. How did you deal with the whole idea of pressure and performance? And we talked about how you had performed in the Ben Johnson League. You, You were a teenager pitching against some college kids, but now you're again 18, 19 years old, and there there are some guys who have had college experience, and there are some guys who have been drafted even higher than you were. How did you deal with all that competitiveness and toughness that you had to have? Yeah, I, I think it was a, it it was um, kind of stark reality hitting me in the face when you see uh, exactly like you said. There's uh, there's grown grown men playing this game in the minor leagues. They have families. They some of them had kids, and watching them, you know. Uh, try to make a living as a professional baseball player and then seeing some of them get released and the looks on their faces was to me kind of shock therapy you know realizing that wow this this guy just lost his job he just got released from a low a ball team in charleston south carolina and he's got two kids already and what's he going to do now and how seriously these these young men took this game and the difference between amateur and pro was uh something that was uh, a slap in the face for me to, to, to understand and to respect and, and to, uh, to realize that it, that it means a lot to, to so, many, so many people and uh, that it can be gone tomorrow. We could do an entire podcast on the difficulty of being a minor league player in 2019. So, so let's go back to the early 80s. You've talked about in the book, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, uh, sleeping on the end of a couch and not not having a ton of money, ha- having to pull your money together to, to maybe get dinner for that night. But you have also said at, at the end of all of the hardship, you had baseball every day. All of the difficulties of being a minor leaguer, were you able to push that stuff aside because on any given day you had a baseball in your hand and that, that dream was still there? Yeah, absolutely. You took your refuge during the games. That was the, the most fun you had was uh, actually performing and performing well. So the highs and lows of uh, a good night versus a bad night and understanding, well, if I get in a slump here, am I going to get sent down? Am I going to get released? I mean, all of these thoughts run through your mind that the pressure to perform is, is – becoming a stark reality and understanding that if you don't do your job, you're gone. And uh, it's not like it would have been in college. It wasn't like it was in high school uh, where you get encouragement and you're always going to get another chance. Uh, you might not get another chance in professional baseball. You befriended some pitchers who became really talented major league pitchers, much like yourself, Mark Gubiza and Brett Saberhagen. We've got a terrific story in the book about how one day they started to mimic your motion, and you've got this 
cupping or wrapping of your wrist that you did that you were not even fully aware that you did, and they were inquiring, why do you do that? What was that moment like, and, and what did cupping the baseball do for you? Uh, first of all, I felt like um, you know, cupping the baseball, I, I was, had a real wristy action, a lot of snap with my wrist, and I think that was probably from being a little bit undersized growing up or trying to generate momentum and spin on the baseball, and, and that really seemed to help me. And you know, back then there wasn't a lot of videotape work, so I'd never really seen myself pitch on, on tape before or, or studied it, so I wasn't even aware of what I looked like. And uh, so when Saberhagen and Gooby kind of showed me what I was doing with my wrist, uh, yeah, I, I kind of wondered if that was the right thing to do or if it was a weird sort of a quirk or if it's something, a habit I needed to break. And, and then I realized every time I threw that it was so natural that I couldn't break it if I wanted to. And even though there was some pitching coaches that kind of uh, frowned on that action with your wrist. Do you think, uh, you know, Rick Sutcliffe had that kind of wrist action, kind of a wrapping of your wrist at the bottom of your delivery as you get ready to bring your arm up to th actually throw the baseball? Uh, Tanaka has it now. Masahiro Tanaka has it now. Um, there's a few pitchers that do that are a little more wristy, and, and for me it was always a way to generate spin on the baseball, and I think it helped me. You know, the more I look back on the style that I had and – the more I understand pitching mechanics now and some of the medical data that, that's out now, uh, you know, I think, I think it, it really helped me. I think it was a real benefit. You mentioned that some coaches didn't like it. Uh, in the book, you detail how you ended up clashing with some pitching coaches because you, you were such an individual as a pitcher. You liked to chain charm angles. You, you liked to drop down. What was that part of your minor league career like sort of fighting for who you wanted to be as a pitcher? It was very difficult. Uh, you know, my first couple of years, I had some success, so they kind of left me alone in the lower levels of the minor leagues. And then, you know, I had a major knee injury uh, when I was covering home plate uh, in a spring training game and had an ACL injury, and uh, that set me back a couple of years. So coming back from that injury, that's when some of the pitching coaches got me in the, in the Royals minor league system and really tried to change me and remake my mechanics. And it was a real battle because it's very hard to uh, change the way you naturally throw a baseball. It's very hard to change naturally the way you swing at a baseball if you're a hitter. So, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't like it. I pushed back. I think I developed a reputation for being maybe uh, a little bit headstrong, hard to coach at times, or somebody that was a little bit of a rebel. And uh, I, I'm guilty, guilty on all <laughs> charges, and I'm kind of glad I was. The uh, knee injury that you mentioned, it was your left knee, the ACL, and a lot of folks who maybe don't go back and dig through your minor league career don't realize that that really did set you back. Not only did you miss an entire season, you talk in the book about how all of a sudden you had to learn how to land again, and, and you needed the stability of that knee, and it wasn't always there. And if you want to go to baseballreference.com, uh, David's strikeout-to-walk ratio in, in a couple of those minor league seasons were not where you needed them to be, kind of almost one-to-one -one in a few of those years. Yeah, I really struggled with command and, uh, you know, it, the most important thing for a pitcher is how you land. You know, that's your brace. You know, you have to land firmly. You have to land in a, in a solid way that, that helps you stabilize against the ground and use the ground as force in order to generate arm strength and generate command. And uh, my land leg was compromised from the surgery. It took me a long time to build up the strength. 
uh, I almost had to learn how to stride differently, how to land differently, and it took me a couple of years just to get back to having confidence uh, to be able to command the strike zone again. I want to go back to the coaches for a second. You had some tremendous coaches in your career. You've talked about Mel Stottlemyre. You won 20 games under Mel in a couple of places. So in no way am I trying to denigrate coaches, but there's a high school kid listening to this podcast right now, and and he disagrees with something that his coach says, or maybe it's a college kid. You you believe that as an individual, you've got to do what's most comfortable and what feels right for you. That would be your advice to that kid, I would assume? I, I would, I, absolutely. That would be my advice. There's nothing wrong with um, seeking a second opinion, another coach. There's nothing wrong with uh, believing in yourself and your style and what you feel like is natural for you. Um, you know, it, it has to feel right. If it doesn't feel right, then you're never going to trust it. And even if whatever coach is telling you, you know, even if that advice might be sound based on experience or based on some sort of a theory, one size doesn't fit all. There's a lot of different ways to go about this, and there's a lot of different ways to, to get hitters out. And uh, diversity of style is a good thing. Not everybody throws the same way. So if you've got a style that you believe in, um, hold on to that style would be my advice. You've always said that you can have a uh, Graham Lloyd who's six seven or six eight and kind of slinging it from the left side, and you could have Marcus Stroman who's five ten and throwing a lot of power pitches. I know the Boston Red Sox and Bobby Valentine once approached you and asked you about being a pitching coach. If you ever were a pitching coach, no cookie cutter advice for you is what you're saying. You would absolutely make sure you looked at each guy as an individual absolutely yes i would and one of the guys who really taught me that was watching and playing actually one year with pedro martinez and a lot of power pitchers are taught that you have to get your fingers on top of the ball you have to throw the ball downhill you have to get your arm up and pedro was just the opposite of that he got his fingers behind the baseball he threw from down to up almost from a sidearm angle he could make the ball ride up in the zone his four seam fastball seemed to shoot and take off up in the zone because he got underneath the baseball and kind of almost pushed it in a pushing style and that's when i realized you know that pedro martinez 510 59 but could throw the ball in the upper 90s with a sidearm delivery almost if you if you stopped his release point it would almost be sidearm and uh, very lower three quarters, if anything, on his angle. So he was in—he was the exact opposite of what most pitching coaches taught. He taught power pitchers how they had to throw. So um, yeah, everybody's flexibility is different. Everybody's range of motion is different. Everybody's natural release point is different. And there's nothing wrong with that. That should be embraced rather than trying to uh, be changed. You had your one season in Boston, and in the book you describe being on the sidelines next to Pedro, throwing, and the, the sound of the changeup just coming off his fingers. I think we describe it in the book as almost like wallpaper being ripped off a wall, that you couldn't believe the friction he was getting on his changeup. Yes. See, I mean, the, the tight spin that he got on his changeup, too, it, it was remarkable. That's what made it so effective. It looked like the spin on his fastball, only it was 15 miles an hour slower with tremendous movement on it. So Pedro had unbelievable flexibility in his fingers. He could touch his forearms, bending his fingers back and touch his forearms with just about – all of his fingers, which is something I had never seen before. So he was clear, clearly gifted, very flexible. Uh, he's, a, he's uh, you know, one of the greatest of all times and one of the most talented individuals I've ever seen. You're listening to the Full Count Podcast, and if you're enjoying our podcast, 
Please let us know by leaving us a review on iTunes. We're very interested in hearing your feedback, so don't forget to do that. And as I mentioned in our first episode, every episode we're going to give away an autographed book, but you have to answer the trivia question first. Here's what you need to do. Well, first let me ask the question. I gave the answer to this at the beginning of episode two, so you have better have been paying attention. You could probably Google this too, though. We need the name of the scout who signed David Cohn. The scout who signed David Cohn. If you have the answer, you need to tweet it to at Yes Network, but include the hashtag Full Count Podcast. So we want the answer, which is the name of the scout who signed David. We need the hashtag Full Count Podcast. And the person who's first will win an autographed copy of Full Count. Now, David, you played winter ball in Puerto Rico. And again, this might be a little more unknown aspect of your career. And you found some things in Puerto Rico. How did that help get you closer to being a major leaguer? Well, first of all, you, I think you, you need the experience. You need more reps, as they say. So continuing to pitch in the offseason after you know a minor league season that's not as long as the major league season. Minor leagues are usually a month shorter. Um, so you, you don't get as much of a chance to develop your craft. So just that in, in and of itself was big, to get the extra experience in the reps. But also um, the Puerto Rican League at that time was a great league. There's a lot of competition down there. It was a next level uh, for me uh, to, to find out what I needed to do to get better. And uh, you know, I, I credit Puerto Rico with, with tr- really helping me. Two years back-to-back, I went and played winter ball and pitched all year round. And my arm got stronger. Uh, physically, I got bigger and stronger. And, and uh, yeah, I also learned how to pitch a little bit more uh, against some great competition in the Puerto Rican Winter League. You make it to the Major Leagues 1986. You're, you're coming out of the bullpen. What do you recall about that moment and, and the journey that it took to get you there? And bang, now you're finally there. You know, that's, I, I always get sentimental when I see a major leaguer make his uh, debut because I remember that feeling and I remember the thought before it happened that, is it ever going to happen? And that's the goal. Man, if I could just step on the field one time, I could say I made it. You know, that, that's an accomplishment in and of itself that so many players die on the vine in the minor leagues. So many players die on the vine in college ball that never get a chance to play professional ball. And some of these players are really good players. And sometimes it's just a little... Sometimes it's just misfortune where you're not in the right place at the right time or can't get somebody to believe in you. So, yeah, I never underestimated that, and I felt such a sense of accomplishment that after everything, the big knee injury that I had in the minor leagues, almost four or five full years in the minor leagues, I finally made it to step field on a big league field, and my hometown field at that. It was in Kansas City where I grew up. It was at Royals Stadium that I that I loved to go go to when I was a kid watching the Royals. So that moment meant everything to me at that particular time that snapshot in time it was you know i made it and and, uh, it 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 was a real sense of accomplishment you're in that clubhouse with george brett someone who you had tried to imitate as a kid stole his batting stance another veteran like dan quisenberry how uh, much did quisenberry mean to you because he saw a kid little rebellious side and made sure that he talked to you about walking the walk i guess as a as a big leaguer yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's it's so easy to get overwhelmed uh, that, you know, you, you made it to the big leagues. There's such a big jump in, in money. The minimum wage in the big leagues compared to what you were making in the minor leagues, even on the AAA level, is night and day. It's not even comparable. You've got a little bit of meal money in your pocket. 
you're hanging out with big leaguers after the games where are we going tonight it's it's very easy to uh get caught up in the life and and to uh kind of get off track a little bit so quiz quiz was great for me he got me to the side and had some great talks with me and taught me what was expected uh it's not about getting to the big leagues it's about sticking in the big leagues and he asked me that question do you want to stay around here i mean you made it that's great but you know, what about the next step? And are you going to be a reliable big league player that we all can trust? Because you're being watched now and you're being judged. And I never really realized that. Or the way Quiz presented it to me was was in such a good way because it was coming from a place of concern and that he really cared about me. And, uh, you know, I never forgot that. Early in your career, you give up a home run to Reggie Jackson. And you're you're distraught even though it is Reggie Jackson. George Brett had a, had a nice moment with you as well. What did Brett do for you after uh, Reggie Reggie took you deep? Oh uh, well, you know I think um, back then you know the the rookies were you could get on the rookies a little bit more. Um, so yeah, you could you could uh, you could definitely uh, get made fun of a little bit easier. And you, you part of it was a test. It was kind of a rite of passage. So uh, you, not only were they they would try to see if you were tough enough to handle adversity or to have a, have a bad game and handle it. Uh, it, it was also, uh, you know, some of the things that happened in the clubhouse, you know, you can't, it's hard to repeat, you know, because some of them, you know, are, you know, clubhouse banter. But George was great. I think he understood that, uh, you know, what that meant. I was in Reggie's book. Reggie, Reggie Jackson uh, hit a bunch of home runs off a lot of pitchers. And, you know, I, I came to find out later that he probably didn't remember me either. You know, when I gave up the home run to him, he he, he doesn't remember all the pitchers who he, who uh, he hit for home runs, but uh, those pitchers remember him. Absolutely. Uh, and now we we move ahead to 1987, and you achieve your goal. You have a solid spring training with the Kansas City Royals, your hometown team. They tell you you're in the starting rotation, and a day later you're traded to the Mets. That had to just be a bombshell for you to receive that news it was i didn't know how to act you know i thought it was a joke at first i think a lot of young players tell you that kind of similar story um i had to sit down i had to sit down and tell john sherholtz who was the general manager of the royals at the time and billy gardner was the the interim manager for for uh, dick hauser who was sick with a brain tumor at that time um i i I just needed a moment. I, there was about five minutes of silence in the manager's office. And then finally it was, okay, um, who did I get traded for? And am, am I going to be in the big leagues or are they going to send me back to AAA again? Because this was coming off the heels of two straight winter balls in Puerto Rico. And I felt like I had done everything I needed to do to, to be ready to finally take a job in the big leagues. And, uh, boy, I was, it was the complete unknown. I remember walking out of that office and not knowing how to act. I packed up my, my locker as quickly as I could and got out because you felt like you weren't wanted. You know, you were traded. It's the weirdest feeling in the world that you feel like uh, you're rejected and you don't really know what to do and you can't get out of the place quick enough. And that's basically what I did. I packed up my locker as quickly as I could, shoving stuff into a, a gym bag and just marched out of that clubhouse and, and, and left and uh, just stunned and shocked about what just happened. Ed Hearn, the player the Royals wanted, did not have much of a career with the Royals. Scherholz has called that uh, one of the worst trades in history or his history. Do you think your hard-headedness, as you described, played into the reason that you were traded? I'm sure that was part of it, yes. I I think there probably was part of that, that, hey, you know – you know, this kid's a little headstrong, a little flaky. He's pushed back on some of our coaches. Uh, he wraps his wrist 
which may be a precursor to maybe arm injuries on down the road. That was one of the theories uh, that I heard later on. Uh, and they really needed a catcher at that time. I think they really believed that Ed Hearn was their guy. Uh, I, that's obviously a trade nowadays with analytics and data that would not be made. Uh, but that trade was made based on two weeks that Ed Hearn had when Gary Carter was hurt the previous year. The 86 Mets had a great year. Ed Hearn was the backup catcher. He had an incredible two-week run on the West Coast uh, when the Mets went out west in the middle of the summer when Gary Carter was on the DL. And that's basically what the Royal Scouts all – I think it was Tom Farrick was one of the uh, – the big super scouts for the Royals back then, and uh, he loved what he saw those two weeks uh, from Ed Hearn, and he also didn't like the way I wrapped my wrist. So that's the last part I heard of the puzzle was was those two pieces. But to answer your question, yeah, I think uh, the, you know personality does does play a role. So now David Cohn from St. John Avenue in Kansas City gets sent to the New York Mets. He'd never even been to New York. So on the next episode, part three of the Full Count Podcast, live from New York, it's David Cohn.